Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Mike Boris, and this is Straight Talk. As we wrap up another prime ministership, the losing side is looking for a new job that will give them the same adrenaline rush as it once did when they were sitting in the midst of parliament, in the snake pit. And Joe Hockey knows exactly how that feels. After coming so close to being the leader of the Liberal Party, and he was on track to become the PM of Australia. Hockey served as Australia's ambassador to the United States in the last year of President Barack Obama's term and throughout Donald Trump's presidency. And now he's released a memoir, and that tells the tale of those tumultuous, extraordinary, probably punishing times as well, and his title, fittingly, Diplomatic. Very few people emerged unscathed from their encounters with Trump, and hockey proved to be the notable exception, successfully defending and projecting Australia's interests within our alliance with the United States. Of all the countries doing business with Donald Trump, their relationship with Australia was better than any other. Largely, I think, that rests on Joe's skills as a negotiator, not just a diplomat, but a negotiator, person who can read people. Also, his larrikinism and his drive to make the role of ambassador his very own. So it's time for No Bullshit with Joe Hockey. Joe Hockey, welcome to Straight Talk, mate. Great to see you again, Mark. It's been a while. Uh, too long. It is too long. Well, you know, you, now that you have to pay me to come in to the interview. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I didn't have a... Oh, yeah. Oh, interview come... finished. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I can only afford him every six minutes. Like he's That's right. Ch- cha- uh, charging uh, lawyers' hours. Mate, yeah. so, so last time we spoke was like, I just re- realised, it's 2015, I think. Yeah, yeah. Which had just resigned as treasurer. Yeah. Um, we'd just been through the, the Turnbull blah, blah, blah drama um, and you took on the ambassador role in the United States. Whatever happened to cheeky blokes like yourself, we've gone from blokes who have character and personality from my point of view. I mean, I'm an old school dude um, where I enjoy your company but at the same time I get nothing from you other than what you think is appropriate to give in terms of your role as treasurer. And I just want to cite one example. I remember when I went and saw you, and it must have been like 2013 and 14, I went and saw you. Um, it was about, in my view at the time, the bad behaviour of the banks and some other issues that were, that were occurring at the time. And I remember you said to me, Mark, we're a non-interventionist government. We don't 
want to be regulating everybody all the time. And you basically sat me on my ass and sent me packing. I mean, I had a proposition, I had something I wanted to prosecute with you, but you just closed me down straight away. And politely. Politely. No, yeah. it was very polite, yeah. but it was direct and straight to the point. Yeah. But at the same time, you can be Joe, the bloke smoking a cigar, Joe, yeah. the bloke loves his footy, Joe's got a great family. Joe, if I bumped into you down a Bondi, you'd say hello. Yeah. It's, yeah. Today, politicians have nowhere near the character, nowhere near the personality, just too scared to be themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I Look, I found it much easier, Mark, to be authentic than to be fake. I mean, it's, and, you know, some people didn't like that. Some people wanted me to be something that I wasn't. I couldn't do it. I just found it much easier being authentic. And, you know, um, some of the people listening to this may not believe this, but it's the absolute truth. Um, you know, during the dark moments when I reflected on lost opportunities and, you know, also 20 years in elected office, I sort of thought to myself, I never once lied as a, you know, to the people I was representing. They might have said, you've changed your mind. They might have said, uh, you didn't tell us about something, which is not really true. I was actually got myself in trouble for being too honest. But the fact was I never, ever lied. And I, that, that sort of lifted me a bit, lifted my spirits because I felt that I didn't do what was popular. I did what was right. And, that, and, 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 and you know, other people might have a different view, but they're entitled to that. Today... I think social media has killed political dialogue. I think now the voice of the critic is much louder than the voice of the advocate. Drowns out, the, the negative drowns out the positive and that's that's hurt political discourse. But, you know, it's, everyone shouts and everyone has to take a corner. I, you know, I saw that writ large in the US. I mean, I was there for the whole Trump versus Hillary, Trump versus Biden, Trump versus the world uh, and I saw how easy it was to pillory someone on both sides uh, rather than to have a substantive debate. From my point of view, I find it equally distasteful, whether it's Albanese or Morrison, when they get a, a brickbat put to their head every time they say something. Sure. And, like, the the, the fervour and the um, anger that sort of sits out there, the poison that's sort of sitting out there today is killing me. Like, uh, do you think we're ever going to come back to that? No. We're cooked. We're cooked if you try and take personality or the critics out of politics. There's nothing left. So you, you're going to have that. you just got to find a way to deal with it. You know, we it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, this is the theory according to Joe. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, we had a very regulated economy and then we had high inflation. You know, there was a period of deregulation, you know, when productivity was driven, when... I remember when they dumped tons of eggs out the front of Parliament House in Macquarie Street in Sydney against the deregulation of the egg industry. But all the pollies agreed we had to do things that opened up the economy to create competition because either the internet was going to change, you know, our economy or we were going to try and hang on to the old days of a very regulated economy. So as the pollies led the deregulation process, more disruptors like you... Yep. Exactly. Came into the market, disrupt the banks. You saw the internet disrupt news media. Now, over time, you saw Uber disrupt taxis, a regulated industry. You saw 
uh, Airbnb disrupts hotels. It goes on and on and on. What's happened since the GFC, in my view, governments are expected to solve everything. And when the deregulated economy isn't doing well, governments are expected to step up with money. And when I chaired the G20, which is all the finance ministers of the leading economies of the world, in 2014, I looked around the room and all the central bankers and all the finance ministers were exhausted by the GFC. They'd spend every dollar they had trying to keep their countries out of the recession, and often they couldn't. Interest rates were at zero. And then things started to improve again, but then we get hit by COVID, the whole world. And all of a sudden, there's no money left to spend to get re-elected, interest rates are at zero, people are used to the idea of now full employment <clears throat> and it's the economics is going bad. So the biggest risk going forward is that the only lever politicians have is to start re-regulating things, re-regulating news media, re-regulating the economy, regulating banks, regulating our... My industry, for example, banking yeah, has that's been right. re-regulated. Yeah, that's right. And Call the Royal Commission. All, all this regulation coming back, even going so far where, you know, in the case of Beijing or in Moscow or many, or, or in Turkey, in, in Ankara, the government says, look, we know better than you. We're going, look, don't worry about elections or we'll rig the elections. So now you're seeing autocrats... Only, you know, stunning stat I've heard the other day, only 20% of the world has a free election. Only 20% of the world have a vote. That's what it is, right? And so this is a big turnaround in the direction of the world where all of a sudden we rely more and more on government. And, 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 And if the government doesn't respond to you, you shout at them on Twitter, you shout at them everywhere and you say to them, I'll get rid of you and I'll get someone else. This government push to now become more regulatory in various environments as a result of them being pushed by interest groups yeah. on the very social media. Or the loudest voice. The, or the loudest voice, whoever yeah. it is. Yeah. So is that sustainable though? Because I, I have to tell you, like in my industry, the banking industry, um, Royal Commission guests come along. I remember I asked you to hold a Royal Commission or a commission yeah. into this and you said no way. That was yeah. the question I wanted to put to you. I think yeah. there should be a commission. You said no way. Then Scott held the Royal Commission. But, but I did have a review of you the had Murray review. Po- you had to nine that's, points. <laughs> that's right, and I knew what they were. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I don't know now. I, was, I knew what they were. And what I did was I said, Let, okay, we'll have a look at the system, but we're not going to have a kangaroo court. Yeah, yeah. Right? With And, and that was really important. You know, getting, I don't want to get too technical, but you remember I increased the tier one capital of the banks. Yep. I put money into the RBA, mm-hmm. eight and a half, $8.8 billion I put into the Reserve Bank to make sure I kept saying for a rainy day. And then rainy day came with COVID and all, we had no problems with our banks, we had no problems with the Reserve Bank and still we have great competition in Australia. But, you know, if you just respond to the loudest voice all the time, you're going to have terrible regulation. I don't know. I'm doing a home renovation in Australia in Sydney. Man, the red tape and the green tape. Oh my God. Mm. I would never renovate again. I would never employ another tradie again. I'd never employ a builder again. I want to build things. I want to make things better. You want to you want to spend money. I want to spend money yeah. to make make things better to make money. But by God, stop trying to control me. And what we've seen now over the last few years, particularly with COVID, government was always collecting, part, you know, it's, it's a business partner on the revenue side because they tax you. 
and then the government regulates you in the middle, but under COVID, the government's supplying you with income. So they're on all sides of your business. And some people think that's the norm. It's not. And it shouldn't be. And it shouldn't be. Otherwise, there'll be no innovation. So someone like Trump, does he think the same way as you're thinking now? I mean, and how would he change things? Well, he did. I mean, Trump deregulated. Mm. Trump lowered taxes. The problem was he didn't reduce spending. He didn't, he did, you know, he just, he had the guilt of someone, you know, billionaire and he said, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to reduce government spending, leave the spending there and the economy will grow and I'll fix it. Of course, in the United States, because they have an election every two years and in the United States because the Congress, not particularly the president, but the Congress determines where money is spent, no one wants to make unpopular decisions. So what you've got to stop before you even get there is making decisions that spend money you can't afford into the future. Now, the US has failed. You know, God bless Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, Democrat, who's a mate of mine, who's who's the deciding voice in the Senate at the moment. Because if you keep locking in all this government expenditure, all you're doing is passing the buck to your kids and the grandkids. In terms of debt? Yeah. Yeah. Someone has to pay it off. It has to end in tears. And the only two ways governments ever pay off debt is either by cutting expenditure and raising taxes or inflation. So don't think for a second that any government in the world thinks a bit of inflation is a bad thing because when they inflate, of course, their debt is locked in at 1% or 2% or 0%, right? So they get higher income taxes with a bit of inflation because you've got higher wages, higher income taxes, and because income tax is the biggest revenue source of the federal government, they they start to pay down their debt. So you see the deficit in Australia coming down. Governments reduce expenditure a little bit, but the biggest part of it is more tax, and that's because wages are coming in. It's great you've got low unemployment, higher wages coming in, lower tax, uh, more taxes. And revenues of business should be higher too because per item they're selling at a higher price. They should be selling at a higher price, which means the revenues of the business are high, which means hopefully they're in a position to have a, a greater profit, which means they pay more tax too. Well, that's right. And as you know, the banks, higher interest rates make more on their- Everybody makes well, more. Well, okay, everyone We all do. <laughs> well, okay, okay. But I mean, it's but, it, but there's a point where yeah, yeah. people can't afford it. So you, you do need wages to go up. You do need wages to respond. Yeah. And, and the fundamental question in my mind is- you know, do we need more government or less government? Because I've never seen government as an innovator. Yeah. At the end of the day, people like you or the people watching this program are the innovators. You know, innovation doesn't come out of Parliament House. Innovation comes out of the community. And it could be a small business person uh, out of their garage in, 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 you know, Mulder Street Orange who comes up with a great idea that can change not only, you know, the community but change the world. That can happen these days. And by the way, that is a saving grace for the United States. Yeah. I mean, no matter what you say about the United States, even if you think China is going to be a bigger economy and it probably will, the bottom line is the US innovates like no other nation on earth and it comes out of the, the you know, out of the, out of the core being of that nation. And why? Because it has freedom. Freedom empowers people. Freedom comes at a cost, but freedom empowers people to innovate because they feel as though if they have a go, they get the reward. 
You live between Washington and Australia these days. You know, Washington obviously was your base when you were the ambassador for a number of years. We've got this book here. It's called Diplomatic, which is hardly Joe. Um, That's right. <laughs> he was a diplomat as an ambassador, but hardly, hardly diplomatic, the dude. But I actually quite like Joe Hockey Diplomatic. I don't, I don't know. That sort of seems like a nonsense to me, but, <laughs> but sorry to say, mate. But, That's why it's a good read. But there's, there's lots of good stories in here. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about some of the stories in a second. Yeah. But as a resident of the United States, you just said something about the US, United States, people, the country, the, yeah. the, the, the culture there, it's very creative. What, what is it culturally that makes USA continue to keep come up with all the greatest innovations in the world? They still do, outside of China, outside of Russia, outside of everywhere. The glue that holds big countries together is the hope that one day you could be the leader of the country, you could be the president, the prime minister, you could be the richest person in the country. Hope is, is the most valuable glue that holds a big society, a tough society together. The US is tough, Russia's tough, China's tough. I mean, if they, if people don't feel that either they or their children can have a better quality of life, uh, then, then you're going to have a lot of trouble. You're going to have a lot of trouble in the community. What happens in the US, you know, it was born out of a civil war. Uh, well, it was born out of out of a revolutionary war, I yeah. should say, right? It was born out of a revolutionary war where everyone in the community was asked to take gun. I mean, actually, you know, in researching the book, there was a percentage of the community that didn't want the US to become independent. They, they, they were on the side of the Brits. But they fought and they had their guns and they had their militias and they fought and they got their country. And then they, just like Russia and China after a revolutionary war, the United States then had a horrific civil war and the US more, lost more of its own citizens in the US civil war than it lost in every other war combined, World War One, World War Two, Korea, you know, Vietnam, et cetera. It lost more of its own citizens fighting against each other and it genuinely was brother against brother, sister against sister. You know, it was terrible, tore the nation apart and they had the same population as us. Now, today, 20, about 26 million, they lost half a million people, right, in that war. The scars are still deep, not just on race, but on the fact that you have to fight for your family. As, you know, the Revolutionary War said you had to fight for yourself, the Civil War said you have to fight for yourself. American ha- America has a big gun culture because Americans don't trust Americans. They walk down the street, they can't trust someone isn't, you know, going to have a go at them particularly in some places. So the nation then says, if I don't innovate for myself, then, you know, no one's going to give me a living. And that's what has defined America's strength. I'm go- I've got to survive. I've got to, I've got to have a go. And if I have a go, actually I can, I can become rich. I could be Bill Gates. I could be Warren Buffett. I could be, you know, Jeff Bezos and, you know, from rags to riches. That's the story that motivates innovation but also entrepreneurship in America. Whereas in Australia, I mean, we, you know, we sort of, we were sort of like the, the, the child that, you know, our parents wanted to get out of home, right? They helped to raise us and we relied on our parents and we still think to some degree that if things go bad, the government will bail us out. In America, there's not that culture. You know, it's it's the antithesis of American culture to think the government is going to bail you out. 
It's funny you should say that about Australians because I think you're right. I mean, it's Australians do, do expect the governments to bail them out. Yeah, we have more of a social, more of a socialism, socialist platform, sort of in, somewhere in our in our guts. I mean, yeah, I, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the idea that we live in a really tough country and we're a small population. And if anything goes wrong, the government will take care of us. Now, maybe that's a good thing, but it's certainly not going to be the biggest driver of you know fearless hope. I like that. Fearless hope. This is fearless. Um, this is authentic. Yeah, yeah. And it's sure. all about a whole lot of stories. Yeah. You know, the book in terms of everyone talks about Trump, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to talk about Trump. Well, you can ask me about Trump if you want, but there's lots of stories about Trump, right? The golf course one. Yeah, there's golf course one. So you can ask me about that. But the one I really want to give you is is, uh, is is this one. You know, I went to Beijing as treasurer. And it was an APEC meeting and I got on really well with the finance minister of China, Lo Jiwei, great guy, tough. Um, and uh, we had the finance ministers of the Asia Pacific there and we were at this, you know, at this hotel and we are having a meeting. He said, he said, look, Joe, we're going to the Great Hall of the People, Tiananmen Square. We're going to meet the Premier and the leadership of China. I want you to be the spokesperson on behalf of everyone. Just say thank you. Great to be here. See you later. That's what he said, right? And I'm going, oh, wow, okay. Great hall of the people right next to Tiananmen Square. I thought it was one hall, but it's seven. And we walk in filing and, you know, it's roughly half the world economy and I'm speaking on behalf of everyone, right? You walk into this huge room and there was like 300 media there, cameras everywhere, right? And it's in the shape of a horseshoe and at the... The apex of the the, the 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 horseshoe is a big, you know, pot of beautiful flowers and two chairs, and then everyone else is sitting. You know, in that Chinese yep. way. So they go, you go and sit here next to Premier Li, right, and interpreted behind the flower pot. And I'm sitting there, a bit like this, sitting there, and I'm looking at you know basically the whole Politburo there. The only person who wasn't there was the President Xi Jinping, and then I'm looking at all the finance ministers cameras and then big mural of the Great Wall of China. I'm thinking, God, he's going on about how great China is and it's done really well and blah, 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 blah. And the interpreters do into it. And I thought, am I just going to sit here and just say thanks for having us? And I thought about my own dad who started a small business and I thought about all those people that, you know, hand out how to vote for me and I thought about the community in Australia having that chutzpah in Australia that, you know, you say what you really think. And he finished and uh, <clears throat> I thought, oh, no, bugger it, right? And he, I said, well, thank you, Mr Premier, and, you know, to everyone here. Uh, it's a great honour for us to be here. China has a great success story. I first came here when I was 13 years of age, 1978. I was in the second ever tour group to come to China and all the Politburo turned looked at me, right? And I said, um, you know, I, when I came, everyone was wearing green suits or blue suits and they are all nodding. Everyone was on a push bike, hardly any cars, no neon signs, no building more than four storeys high. And I said, and they're all nodding. And I said, I have seen the greatest transformation in the most number of people in the history of humanity. And they all went, yeah. I said, I want to thank you for embracing capitalism. <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh! All I then could see, and it was just like faces, faces dropped. They ushered all the media out of the room. No. Right? It's like the media all started 
peeling out. And all I could see was my friend, the Japanese Deputy Prime Minister, Taro Aso, and he was banging his ego, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he is a capitalist, I can tell you, and he's not a big fan of China. But you know, he's like, and I'm just going, oh god, you know. And I didn't quite expect. Did you realise? But did you know you were going to say that? Or oh yeah, you- yeah, because I, I, that's what they've done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I went on to to say, I, you know, try to rescue the situation. I said, Mr. Premier, nothing illustrates it better than Alibaba listing on the New York Stock Exchange for two hundred and four billion dollars the biggest IPO in America's history, and the mission statement of Alibaba is to facilitate the growth of small and medium enterprise out of China. I said, that has brought prosperity to the people. The enterprise that your nation has been famous for for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, forever. And he said, he said, it's quite interesting, right? He said, you're right. Without enterprise, we would not have today's prosperity. And we need to keep enterprise going. You wouldn't call it capitalism. Yeah, and and, and by the way, forget the capitalism. It is yeah, enterprise. It is enterprise. Human enterprise. Yeah, correct. Our ability to make ourselves better. Yeah. To improve our lives. Correct. Which, if I went right back to where you first started from about renovating your house, which is exactly what you're trying to do at the moment, yeah. but in this country yeah. it's become nearly impossible to improve your position. It's hard. Because of the regulatory environment or just the roadblocks that get put in front of us. How do yeah. they do it in a place? I mean, you've had experience, John, but how does that happen? In China, do they have those sorts of roadblocks that we experience or is it just an overall Well, roadblock? no, they, they let a 1,000 flowers bloom, right? So they've got many billionaires now that have set up businesses and innovated. The challenge is that Beijing's unpredictable. Yeah. And it, and, and it steps in on a business or it steps in to control something. And a lot of big businesses in China have government ownership of some level, some degree. But the innovation, China's moving from, you know, from getting innovation using lots of different ways, but getting it from other countries and copying it and improving it to actually becoming an innovator in itself. The challenge is that some of the innovation in theories in areas that are very confronting, like the ethics of health, you know, what will you do to, to innovate in health? cloning and all that sort of stuff, that's that's unregulated in China. And the, the lack of regulation has helped China to become an innovator, but now, you know, there has to be some standards that, that apply to China uh, as they do to other countries. Do you think we played it right with China in terms of yeah, um, because, politically? Yeah, well, I mean, we've got to stand up to any bullying tactics from any nation. I mean, that's what you expect of Australia. And that's why we cheer so loudly for Ukraine, don't we? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, they're standing up to the bully. And and I think in this world, if if we don't stand up to the bully or we don't stand with those people who are being bullied, uh, then we're lesser citizens. So it's just hugely important that, you know, and, and in my book I, I talk about the moments behind the scenes where I do stand up to Donald Trump. You know, a lot of people never have the guts to do it. I would. I didn't want to do it publicly because then it becomes a public brawl. He wins. He's the president of the United States. I mean, he's got the biggest, you know, bully pulpit in in the world. But privately, I stood up to him on a number of occasions on behalf of my country, as you should. Mm. You know, it's just how you do it. Maybe that's the diplomatic in the term of the book. But, you know, frankly, you can't be bullied by anyone. When Trump rang Turnbull, you were there then. 
Yeah, yeah, I was the ambassador, yeah, yeah. yeah. You were the ambassador, you in the United States. Yeah. When Trump rang Turnbull, yeah. what went down? Like Malcolm Turnbull rang me before and he said, you know, what do you think, you know, is there anything I need to cover with Trump? And we talked about that. And then, you know, we thought it was going to be a convivial happy call later in the day in D.C. Um, and Trump ripped into him because Malcolm said, you know, we expect you to keep a deal on refugees. You were going to take some people off balance. And, uh, you know, the fact was that was the antithesis of Trump's election platform. You know, he wanted to hmm. put up a wall and close the borders and da-da-da. And um, Trump ripped into him. Uh, Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Literally, literally. Yeah, yeah, ripped into Malcolm Turnbull. Now, in the United States, they're much more organized than we are. So when the president makes a phone call with another world leader, there's probably 20 or 30 or 40 people listening on the line, right? Whereas in Australia, it was just Malcolm on his phone, right? I don't right. even know if it was anyone else. And he was taking handwritten notes. In the United States, they've got transcribers listening every word of the president, right? And um, afterwards, Malcolm rang me and he was like, what? Oh my God. You know, he was quite shaken. He said, well, it went very badly. It's, you know, basically cut the conversation short and it went badly and it was, you know, terrible call, right? And Trump said, I'm not honoring a deal from Obama and, you know, why would I do that? And blah, blah, blah. And this is the worst call I've had all day. I thought, oh, well, okay, well, we need to, you know, get out, lay out a plan, try and rebuild the, that relationship. But then it leaked into the media, the full transcript. Now, if you can't trust that a conversation with another world leader is confidential, you know, that's, that's terrible on many, many, many levels and unprecedented, truly. What happened was the conversation between Turnbull and Trump and the conversation between the President of Mexico and Trump were both leaked to the Washington Post and the transcript of them. And at first the Americans said, it's you. You guys did it. I mean, what are you talking about? Why were, firstly, we I didn't have a transcript. Yeah. Right? No one on our side did because Malcolm had his personal notes. I said, but secondly, it's word for word. Why would we leak it? Logically, yeah, 100%. Probably, you know, but it, there was paranoia in the in the White House under Trump, uh, certainly in the early days, but probably all the did way he through. did yeah, but did, did Trump sort of um, sort of um, stir that up? Is that or well, naturally no, or know, unnaturally? He no, it it was a hostile act of someone to release a transcript designed right. to embarrass Trump, right? Um, but what happened was soon after there was a poll released. I think it was the New York Times that was a survey of Americans and their attitudes to other countries. And amongst Democrat voters, the nation they saw as their closest ally 
Number four was Australia. Number one was Britain. Number four was Australia. I think number two is Canada and so on. Right? Amongst Republican voters, we were number one. And Republican voters saw us as their closest ally. That rattled Donald Trump. And when the transcript came out the next morning, John McCain rang me. I still remember quite vividly the call. I was in the car. And he said, you know, Ambassador, they're all very formal in America, God bless them. He said, Ambassador, I'm so embarrassed about this. This is just, you know, I was in Vietnam. Australians were by my side. You know, how could our president talk to your prime minister like this? I want to do something about it. I'm going to tell everyone, you know, that I've rung the ambassador to apologise on behalf of the United States. I said, oh, please, Senator, don't do that because that'll just be like petrol on the fire. And he said, Joe, I'm doing it. I'm about to write the press release. I'm about to say that you've been with us side by side since World War II, from World War II. I said, well, actually, if you're going to put in a press release, can I help you write it? You know, like it goes back 100 years to World War One. It goes beyond. <laughs> okay, well, okay, I'll give it to you. you got to do it. <laughs> he did it. And, you know, I got that day 60 or 70 phone calls from senators and, men, and, and congressmen and women apologising. From both sides? From both sides. Saying we're we're embarrassed. This is terrible. I want you to know. And then they put out the press release afterwards, saying we've spoken to the Australian ambassador. We've written to the Australian ambassador. So you know, the lesson of politics is never let a crisis go. So I've, I've identified two Republicans and two Democrats in the in the Senate and the House, and I approached them straight afterwards and said, "Will you help to set up a Friends of Australia group in the Congress?" And they said yes, bipartisan. And it's, I think, the second largest group of MPs, of, of, of congressmen and senators are in this Friends of Australia caucus. And they've been our, you know, they've protected our, covered our back every every step of the way since. So here you are in America, you're, you're, you're building these relationships, you're smart to see opportunities. All of a sudden you've got all these unbelievable contacts and network. So you've set up Bondi Partners. Yeah. Effectively it's sort of a, like a lobby business, a contractor for this no, type of no, stuff? No, 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 no. It, it's, it's an advisor? Yeah, yeah. So what I saw was a gap, a gap, you know, the biggest country investor in, in the Australia is the United States yep. by far and our second biggest trading partner, China's the biggest. But also Australians are increasingly investing in the United States and why? Well, because there's risk everywhere else. You know, under Kevin Rudd every, and and you know, various others, they say, well, oh, China's it, China's it, America's gone. Well, all of a sudden America hasn't gone and for a lot of companies they have to be in America. And so, but they didn't know what to do. They thought they knew America because, you know, they watched lots of American TV and they've flown to New York and Los Angeles and so on, right? It's not America. And setting up a business in America is very hard, very complicated. It's 50 different countries effectively. And I said, okay, we'll set up, I'll set up a business in DC and a business in Australia that will help businesses get to America or come into Australia. But you put him in contact with people? Yeah, so, and it's business to business. Yep. It was overwhelmingly B2B, but it was also B2G to some degree. And then I'd get a lobbyist in. I'd find the right lobbyist. But to you help. know the right lobbyist. Yeah, that's right. You find the right people to go to the right people. Yep. That's really, really important. Right? Because in Australia they're not familiar with this concept. In America they are. So, you know, in America it's a, a Taneo or a Baines or a McKinsey's or someone like that, whereas in Australia it's, a bit, it, you know, people say, oh, you must be a lobbyist, right? Uh, so we started that and then, you know, one of my first clients was this 
little business at the time out of Brisbane called Loom, and they rang me up and I started, I remember the card table. I've been, and this is the hard thing, you know, Mark, if you've been treasurer, you've been ambassador, everyone's polite and you've got lofty position everyone knows you. You know the biggest risk in my life is starting Bondi Partners. I sat there at a card table in the basement. COVID had hit for three months. No one was out of the house. Nothing was happening. And I asked my former chief of staff from the embassy, an American guy from Florida, I said, let's start this business together, right? And we sat there. And, you know, the biggest event of, of like the first three months was it was a real journey to go out and buy a second-hand printer for our little office. couldn't get out? Well, he couldn't get out. There yeah. was no shops open. Everything was dead. And I'm going, my God, right? And, you know, I had engagements from Rio and Macquarie, mm. a couple of others, but and VGI, right? So I had them personally, but how am I going to get this business going? And it was, you know, I was mindful of advice Kerry Stokes and, and uh, you know, given me. He said, when you start a business, he said, burn the bridges behind you. Mm. You can't find. And I'm going, there are no bridges. They're gone, right? So how am I going to do this, you know? And it was pretty scary. And then, you know, the phone rang, a company out of Brisbane called Loom, and they said, look, would you help us in the United States? We can't fly anywhere, but we've got this great flu test. And all you do is you attach it to your cell phone, it goes up to the cloud, and in 15 minutes comes back down and gives you a 95% accurate. Uh, you know, diagnosis. Result, yeah, of, of, of flu. And I said, can you do COVID? I said, oh, it could take us a few months, but we've been trying to get into the FDA for four years in the United States and we got nowhere. So we thought maybe you could help because we can't even get on a plane to get over there and this is our whole business. And I said, give me a COVID test, get a COVID test, get in a box, send me some boxes. I'll see what I can do. And so they got a COVID test together, came over, they got the COVID tests in. We said we worked with their lobbies. We had a lobbyist, so we worked with them, provided direction. They got emergency approval from the FDA to get their tests into America on COVID. And then they got a $30 million grant from the NIH, hmm. right? But even better, I saw that aircraft carrier limping into Guam where the commander had said, I've got COVID on the – you remember that? That, yeah, yeah. that graphic scene, right? I said, the US can't send a ship to sea if they've got the risk of COVID. There must be an opportunity with Department of Defence. So I went back to the Department of Defence, found out that they were going to tender for testing kits. We worked with the Loom. They got $230 million US dollars. <laughs> and on the basis they build a factory in Maryland, we helped them find the place for the factory. Importantly, the governor of Maryland was a friend of mine. He just officially opened the factory, which is going to employ up to 1,600 people, and that little Brisbane company is all US. The Australian government didn't want to know about them. Unbelievably. Extraordinary stuff. Ridiculous laws here. Australia failed them, but they went to the United States. That company has taken off. I guess you understand the importance of people got to like you. I mean, you can't be, you've got to be authentic. Not everyone likes me. No, well, that's true. But so I lost my job. <laughs> well, but that, but, yeah, but but Abbott liked you. Yeah, well, he did. Yeah. <laughs> but he lost his job. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but do you understand? Because I think it's important for people to hear from someone like you that really fundamental point of being authentic, being honest, 
and in America you can play the Aussie card a little bit, but being likable because people won't ever op- uh, allow you to go into a tender if you're too late if they think you're a, you're a prick. You know, yeah, like, of course. You know what I mean? Like, but and, and Australians, they don't realise how actual naturally likable we are. Correct. Globally, especially in the US. But also they they like you to be a straight talker. Well, guys are going to say, what is it that's like? Well, well, I think, you know, I, 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 I haven't spent that amount of time on self-reflection, but Mick Mulvaney spoke at my farewell and he said, you know, the reason why Joe worked as an ambassador, why he had such influence in DC, was because he was Joe. He, mm. he just did what he does. And, you know, I think the hard if, when you're in positions of high office or when you're rich or whatever, I don't know about the latter one, but... Everyone wants something. Everyone wants a piece of you. Uh, and the, the the way to get somewhere is to engage with them if you like them, that's it. But sometimes forging the most powerful relationships is based not on asking but giving. And Kim Beasley, to his great credit, my predecessor as ambassador, he said, you know, he never saw anything but more impressive the first time Tony Abbott went to see Barack Obama. Because Barack Obama in the White House was briefed that Abbott is anti-climate change, that he's very right-wing, that he's blah, 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 blah. So Barack Obama thought, oh, God, this is going to be a hostile engagement. You know, it's not going to go well. Kim Beasley walks in with Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott sits there, opening words for Barack Obama. Mr President, everyone comes into this office and asks you for something. I just say to you, what can we do for you? What can we do that will make the relationship better? But also importantly, what can we do to make your job easier? And Kim Beasley said President Obama was just completely discombobulated. He was completely stunned, didn't know how to react and afterwards was glowing in his references to Tony Abbott. He said he's never had anyone walk into the Oval Office and said, how can I help you? Everyone comes in, asks for something. And I think that's really important quality, you know, that, that you know, especially if you have, you know, you're successful or if you're well-known, you know, just say, how can I help? That's very interesting. And I think both you and Habit, do you go to the same school? Or the no, same? same, well, Jesuit education. Yeah, yeah both Jesuits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So he, he was at uh, Riverview. Riverview. And, and I went to Allo's. You went to Allo's, okay. So... It I mean, teaches you to give. That, that's what it, it's what about they, generosity and yeah, of, but, of soul. But that's what they said. It's yeah. concept of service. I mean, Tony's more of a missionary than I am. By totally. The way. I mean, he's like, you know. well, review boys usually are. <laughs> but he's more of a mission. You know, he's got to have a mission. And he's yeah. got to have sacrifice. Yeah. That's why you know he he was a you know genuine firefighter, you mm. know, bush firefighter, and he would genuinely you know if there was a conflict tomorrow, he'd be the first to put up his hand and go out to the front. Yeah. Right. I, I haven't seen any headstone that has a dollar sign saying I'm worth this much on it. Yeah. And and a lot of headstones actually don't say I was president of the United States or I was prime minister or I was treasurer or they don't say that or yeah. I was CEO of, of you know, yeah. whatever business. You know what? They don't. They say he was a good man or she was a good woman or what a great mother or what a great father or, you know. Yeah, That's yeah. what it says. That's the lasting legacy. You know, I asked I asked one of my friends, Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff Trump, he just went to Uluru and I said, where are you staying? And he said, oh, Mass Hotel. I said, there's a, you know, five-star hotel called Sales there, right? 
And I said, uh, no, it's Longitude 131 or 121 yeah, yeah, or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it, I said, it's a very fancy five-star hotel. I said, go and look for the plaque. It's got my name on it because I opened it after it went down to fire. He said, okay, we're going there for dinner. I said, great, go and find the plaque. He sent me a photo. He said, I found the plaque. The plaque had, it, there was nothing on it. It was blank. <laughs> the plaque's still there, but it had all worn off and there was nothing there. Which, by the way, that's what happens. And I thought to myself, there you are, Yeah. right? No one, like, you can have plaques, you can have plaudits, you can have books, you can have all the things in the world, but at the end of the day it comes back to the substance of the human being that people will remember. Yeah, and it's, fun. it's funny. I went, to a, I went to a Catholic school and that's sort of like how I was brought up too, the same deal. Not be saying only Catholics do it. I mean all religions oh, do yeah, it. Yeah, but it's, but it's, it's very Australian too, I think. I think that's sort of a fundamental part of our characteristic. And it's, it's, it's yeah, I think it's quite an endearing thing. And I think if, you're, if, you're, if you can appeal to the people you're dealing with, whether it's the chief of staff of Trump or Donald Trump himself or mm. just somebody down the road who fixes your shoes up. yeah. You should never forget that because it is extraordinarily powerful. Whether you're in, whether you work for someone, whether you want to go into business, or you are in business, or whether you're a politician as well. Joe, I want to just move along a little bit on Bondi Partners a little mm. bit. So, so Bondi Partners, you just mentioned what you do for people who are in or what Australians might want to do in the United States. What about people from the United States who want to come and do business here? What I found is I've I've got to hedge the business. So consulting is good, but it's not going to you know be really huge. You know, so that opens the door. But you're asking people for money, asking clients and asking them, right? The second part of the business is transactions. So, you know, it's reported that we're acting for Blackstone in the acquisition of Crown. I put together a Digicel deal, you know, involving Telstra, working with Telstra and the Australian government to to buy the biggest telco in the Pacific. Um, and we're doing a few other transactions where we are strategic advisors, we're, you know, not investment bankers, but close, air traffic controllers. But you're helping on the strategy. On the strategy. And then the third yeah. part of our business is a funds management business. So you remember I talked about yep. Loom, right? Yep. They offered me, you know, 10% of the company. I didn't have the money. But I could see the massive potential of the company. But you could find people who might want to invest. Well, I, I, I could, but I thought, hang on, I really want to have the capacity when I see something great to invest. Mm. Now, no politician has ever set up a fund, right? It's a managed fund. A yep. managed fund. No yep. one's set it up. People have tried. I think there's been a few illicit funds over the years set up, but not me, right? Or, or any, you know, serious thing. So I wanted to have a partner. So I approached, I did my research, found Ashok Jacob at Ellison Capital. Yep. I went to him. I said, you understand business. You understand, you know, how to look at a balance sheet and make it work. I understand, you know, security. There's no one in national security. In terms of national security? Investment. Yep. I mean, it's there's family businesses, there's a couple couple of listed companies, but in short, all the big funds in Australia, are, everyone's nervous about ESG and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, how are we – we're going to have to build things that are going to protect our kids. And the next battle is going to be technology, overwhelmingly. The big fights are going to be technology. So I said I really want us to have a set up a fund focused on – Defence, intelligence, cyber and space. Space is unbelievable, Mark. Most exciting area of human endeavour is space. And I'm going, you know, I'm seeing all these great innovative companies, but they starve for capital. And, and then we on the, on the investment side, I said, let's not start with funds 
and Ashok agreed. I said, let's just get high net worth individuals because they become advocates of this. And if they're seen to be making money, you know, helping to build the technology, then then others will follow in time. Uh, and so we I approached everyone in my my diary, everyone I could. I'm sorry, well, I was talking about high net worth individuals. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. And uh, anyway, and, but I was I approached everyone I could in the US and Australia and we closed the fund uh, and had a first round fund. How much raised, did you raise? We raised over 30 million. 30 right? million bucks, yeah. Which is a lot for yeah, a first yeah, round yeah, fund, yeah. right? And for something without. Novel too. Yeah, novel. And But the pipeline of money that these people can bring is over 20 billion. Yep. Right. So and America and Australia and. We're now deploying that money into companies, but we want the companies to be, you know, have cash flow and a clear, uh, we want them to be dual purpose. So not only, you know, defence, but they've got to have a commercial purpose as well. That's really, really You've got to important. make money. Make money. Yeah. It's got to make money. Because if, because, you know, whilst you can have all the goodwill in the world, if if it makes money, it'll grow, you know, substantially and quickly which is exactly where we want to be. And the fastest area of expenditure in Australia really is defence. You can see it now. So all of a sudden all the world has changed after Ukraine. What a, what a day that's, that's changed the world, right? So you are seeing Poland and Germany and all these countries. They want the best technology. And Japan too now. Yeah, the, Japan. The countries who, who have been pretty much pacifists for a long time. And we've got to defend ourselves. Yeah. We've got to protect ourselves. And it's not just in, in you know, traditional Military side of things, it's cyber. It, it's up in space. What's happening in space is mind-blowing. I mean, we all rely on space with our, the internet, with our phones, uh, with you know, flying, everything, right? And then that sort of thing, investing in it, being smart about it, backing the technology. And then if my company, Bondi Partners, can also help those companies grow into the United States, Fantastic. There's another income stream yeah. for Bondi Partners. Yeah. In terms of what, what's the name of the fund? Called the 1941 Fund. 1941 So it's fund. 1941 up because that was the year America was yep. attacked yep. and that was the year Curtin said we turned to America. So if you go to 1941.com, yeah, it's there. 1941.com. So, so and, and now that fund now in terms of, you know, like as, as Ashok and Joe, they're not doing the sort of the deep, they're not getting into the weeds. Yeah. So how do you... Uh, resource that fund in terms so of people. Ellison Capital has investment, but yep. also my team at Bondi. Yep. I've got um, my CEO, Anthony Lazapina, who was an investment banker at Investec and Barclays, and my wife, Melissa Babbage. Oh, who, yeah, Melissa. She works yeah, at. Uh, she was a Deutsche, Deutsche and, yeah, but yeah. she's also on the investment committee and she's on some boards, international boards. Yeah. So she knows all about that stuff as well. And then, so what we bring is I've got. Generals, admirals, air vice marshals, intelligence people who are part of Bondi Partners, my team. Right. And they communicate with all the rest of the others in that industry. It's a club, right, if you like. Yep. And they communicate and say, is this going to work? Is that not going to work? What's the prospects for this overseas? What are the prospects domestically? Because, you know, it's also the case that Defence wants to make sure that when they contract with a party, the party has the finances to yeah. be able to deliver on the contract. Very big story. Yeah. So we're never going to have a, a big, secure, sustainable defence industry in Australia if they don't have private capital because you can have a government contract 
but unless the technology keeps up, then it won't be there. The second thing is I, I met the equivalent of Q yeah, out, yeah. Of, out of Bond. Uh, I, I met the equivalent of Q in the United States. Wow. I was having a chat with him, right, you know, crazy bastard, but, you know. And um, he said, you know, we when we buy technology for the security agencies these days, it's hugely important that that be a company that is not just supplying to us. Because previously we would buy technology and um, we'd use it and then we only had one supplier and the technology would be obsolete. So we'd go and buy a whole lot of it for 10 years potential use and then after five years a better technology comes along and the company falls over. So now we only buy the best and and we'll and we want to make sure that company is financially viable. But you seeing these individuals because of you know your role, the people yeah, you that's know, right. and you yeah. and they're all they're all looking for a gig. They're all, and you know they're undervalued totally. They've been getting a I wage mean, or salary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know what? Today they're worth a lot. Market oh value is a God, lot. Yeah, and and you know they're really really smart. Totally. And you know they've seen stuff. You know with with intelligence agents with politics. You know you see sixty percent. Maybe seventy percent of what really happens, mm. right? With intelligence agencies, you see five percent of what really happens. Mm. Yeah. So how do you get a good understanding of ninety-five percent? Well, nothing that it would compromise national security. But these people are incredibly skilled, and I've worked with them over the years. And I'm going, I can't believe you know you're retiring. What are you going to do? Oh, you know, we have to go down the south coast and play golf. Because you know business won't pick us up. Going, oh my god! They retire you young too. They're not. They're not. Yeah, they're yeah, not sixty-five right. or seventy. No, no, not that no, that's no, old, no. But they're yeah. retiring much younger. Oh, and but they're also got incredible experience. They just don't know how to commercialize it. So I've found that niche in in you know the global chair of my business is a former secretary of the U.S. Navy, and wow. in, in, you know and Richard Spencer, who also was a Goldman Sachs and so on. Great guy. I mean, but he was secretary of the Navy for three years, and you know he's seen a lot. And, you know, I often he's based in D.C. and I'll just go around and sit on the porch with him and, I'll, you know, you just learn stuff all the time from these amazing people. Can I ask you, was the best thing that ever happened to you was that uh, Turnbull didn't keep you on and uh, you end up becoming a U.S. ambassador and now you do all this really cool stuff you're doing? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the truth is, Mark, I, you know, I really want to differentiate myself from a lot of my former colleagues because the high point of their life was the office yeah. they held. Mm. So now you see how bitter they are and how resentful and, and you know, how they, you know, they, they don't know what to do when they leave. Well, they're trying they, to keep themselves relevant too. Yeah, well, they're all, all you know, they, they're pining on, yeah, you know, yeah. et cetera. I, I just had to get in, you know, when you, when you fall from a great height, the challenge is not to spend too much time looking in the rearview mirror. Mm. And you know what? It's I sort of convinced myself that it's very hard to move forward if you're just staring in the rearview mirror all the time. Mm. You got to you got to keep looking forward. And you know, I, I wrote the book for my kids. I had a book written about me when I was treasurer about my previous career, and that's it. You know, now I'm I want to build you know a, a business. I didn't I didn't want to call it Joe Hockey and Associates because. I want it to live long beyond me. I want it to. I want to build something that helps everyone to be successful. All the all, all all of it, right? I mean, of course, Bondo Partners is Joe, but it's 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 a great team that I'm building. And to get to you know 25, 30 people as we are now in two continents in a year and a half, 
has been pretty remarkable and, you know, making profits from day one. Thanks very much, Joe. for your honesty. Like what you just said defines, to be frank with you, from my point of view, a lot of your success, you're just your authenticity and your honesty. Thanks, Joe. Well, mate, thank you to you too. I mean, I don't know if anyone ever says it, but I've, I've watched you for many years and dealt with you and you're a great success story, Mark. And, you know, the fact that you keep at it, it's fantastic. You inspire many, many people. Thanks. Good, Good to see you, Jack. Good. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.